0: Well, good morning again. Uh, Just as a little announcement uh, before we begin, if if you want to move forward, if you're feeling crunched, there's some extra seats uh, up here in the the saints section um, if you guys need more room. Uh, Today's uh, week three in our series on uh, repentance. Every year we want to focus on a habit of grace, a spiritual discipline, a practice that the Bible gives us to position us to be able to receive God's blessings and walk with him and to grow uh, in our, not only our knowledge of him, but in our relationship with him. And so it's been good talking about repentance. I've, I've learned a lot. I really have. And it's been so good to, uh, to, re- to learn new things and to remember again God's gift of repentance. Today we're going to begin uh, a two-part section on repentance, um, about something that, that hits close to home for a number of us and that may, has, may have haunted some of us for many years. This is a book that I own. It's on my bookshelf. I've read it. Uh, I've read parts of it multiple times. It's called Dug Down Deep, Dug Down Deep. It's written by a guy named Joshua Harris. Uh, anybody over the age of 40 knows who Joshua Harris is. Uh, back in the late 1990s, a young man, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And, uh, and uh, so a lot of people kiss dating goodbye, actually. It was, a big, it was a big movement in Christian circles. If you're not familiar with it, no worries. But he went on to become a pastor. He became the lead pastor of Covenant Life Church in Maryland. And he served there from 2004 to 2015. Uh, during his tenure there as a lead pastor, someone that I looked up to in different ways, he, they, he published his book in 2011 called Dug Down Deep. Dug Down Deep. The, the subtitle is Building Your Life on Truths That Last. Uh, on the back it says, don't settle for superficial faith. He he had recommendations by people you may have heard of. John Piper wrote a recommendation of the book saying, a humble, helpful, courageous testimony to biblical truth. That's good. Johnny would never write that about me. That's that's nice. A guy named J.I. Packer, a great biblical scholar and teacher, said about this book, a humbling, compelling, invigorating read. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds so good. I did read the book and I thought the book was fantastic. I was a youth pastor and I actually got this while I was a youth pastor and walked through some of the principles in this book with my students, telling them that you want a faith that is real, that's going to change your life. You don't want to just know it, you want to live it. And then in 2015, he uh, resigned. Kind of surprisingly, no one expected it, although there was some scandalous news around some of the church dealings, but not with him personally. So he resigned in 2015, and he told everyone that it was a humble move and that he wanted to go to school, and he never really went to Bible college and seminary, and he wanted to learn, so he went to graduate school. Sounds humble, sounds good. No one heard from him for a while. Then in 2019, he shocked the evangelical world through Instagram, stating that he was divorcing his wife, leaving their three children, not in a home like it ought to be. And not only was he leaving his wife, he was leaving the faith. And part of his Instagram, he wrote this, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction the biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. It hurt the people in his church. He was their lead pastor for 11 years. He was a great Bible teacher. He's a wonderful communicator. I mean, he's he's talented. He did a TED Talk in 2019. I don't recommend any of his stuff after 2015, but... He's a powerful communicator. He's gifted. And there were people in his church that thought, is my faith even real? And a lot of people asked the question, can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your faith? Can you, can you fall away like what he's saying from the faith? I don't like the term lose your salvation for two reasons. One, it's not mentioned in the Bible about losing salvation. But two, in order to, quote, lose salvation in that sense, Jesus has to first lose you. And that doesn't seem very possible if you're sealed by the Holy Spirit in God's hand, covered by the blood of Jesus. There's no condemnation for you. Once you've placed your faith in Jesus and you know him and love him, you are a born-again believer. You, you must be born again to inherit eternal life. But the question has been asked by Christians since the first century. Maybe you know someone in your life like that. I have another book up here. It's a Bible. On the front is an inscription that says, uh, "Alex, a bond servant of Jesus Christ." I was Alex's youth minister. I loved him like he was a younger brother to me. I remember the day that he came forward to give his life to Christ. He had a not great background, kind of like me. He gave his life to Christ, and he was all in it. He even went to Bible college. At my recommendation, we would meet together. He bought this Bible because it was a Hebrew and Greek word study Bible. And he wanted to know what the words meant. Because I taught my kids, you don't need... Anything else, you need, you need God, you need his truth. Every word matters. I believe in the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. This is authority like no other. There's no man. There's no, there's no denomination. There's no, quote, church, government. Nothing is above the Bible. This is our faith and practice right here. And so I taught him, you, you read every word. And he did. Went to Bible college. Told me he was going to be a minister, felt called to ministry. After his first year of college, he, uh, he got hurt by the seminary, and then he got hurt by his church friends, and then he stopped going to church, and eventually he didn't want to go to church, and it got to a point to where uh, I was at his house. He never left me. He knew I loved him. I still love him. But he told me he was going to throw away this Bible because he no longer wanted anything to do with with this. And I said, dude, you can't throw that away. He said, Well, you either take it with you or it's going in the trash. i have throwing it away. And I took it home. So many times I opened this Bible up and I just wept for Alex. How what happened? He he was in ministry. He was I mean, of all the students, I was like, this guy's gonna go the distance. How did he walk away from the faith? My understanding of the scripture is that you can't be unsaved once you're saved. There's no way to unsave yourself. You, You don't have the power to do that. I still think that. I believe that. Don't just think it. I know what the scripture says about our assurance. But this question, because of these scenarios, cause us to step back and say, wait a minute. Is our theology correct? Is it true that you can't walk away? And when people ask that question, undoubtedly all of them go to Hebrews chapter 6. And the reason why we're beginning the discussion now on this passage is because at the center of Hebrews chapter 6 is the idea of repentance. When is repentance impossible? On the road to repentance, is there a dead-end sign somewhere? No. Is it true that you can all of a sudden get to a point to where you're never going to repent again. And it's just, it's over for you. No second chances. Well, people read Hebrews chapter 6 and feel unsettled about that question from the passage. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 6 with you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. What does that mean? To restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the son of God, and, it, and the, the actual Greek is just to themselves, ESV takes a little liberty to say, to do themselves harm, but it doesn't use the word harm, it's just to themselves. They crucify again, to themselves, the son of God, and holding him up to contempt. Maybe your translation says, putting him to open shame. It's two participles. About crucifying him, putting him to open shame, and it's tied to an indefinite, or, uh, uh, I'm sorry, an, inde- uh, an infinite, infinitive verb to restore. It's, it's tied to this infinitive. And so people read this and say, whoa, at some point it's impossible to bring somebody who's listed in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it's impossible to bring them to repentance while they're doing these two things. So does that mean at some point it's impossible to repent? Well, in in order to answer that question, we have to look at the context of Hebrews 6. We have to look at the letter of Hebrews 6. We have to do a little bit of study. Now, listen, I, I know you guys are mentally strong. Some of you binge watch shows for four hours in one sitting. So you can handle this. For the next few minutes, we're going to look at the context of Hebrews, because we want to understand what does this mean. At some point, is repentance impossible for me or my loved ones? Is that is does it mean that Joshua Harris and Alex and others? Does it mean there's no point even talking to them? It's over. That that ship has sailed. No need to pray for them. No need to witness to them. No need to do anything. They're done. Is that what it means? I don't think that's what it means. Sorry to kill the tension in the room, but but in order to understand the passage, we have to get around the context. So to understand the context of a letter, you kind of begin with who's writing this letter and no one knows. No one knows who wrote Hebrews, but we do know who Hebrews was written to. So there's a series of three questions we're going to walk through a little bit just to understand the context. Who was it written to? Why is he writing, writing to them? And when is it impossible to repent? So question number one, who was he, Hebrews written to? Well, if you, go, if, you, if you read through the whole book of Hebrews, you find out the book of Hebrews, the reason why it's even titled Hebrews in our language, why we call it Hebrews, is because it's written to Jewish believers. Jews of the day that book made a confession, made a profession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They claim that he's the one that was to come, that the Old Testament was referring to. It's, it's, the author is writing to Jewish believers, and let me show some of that. Uh, starting in Hebrews chapter 1, he starts talking about angels. This wasn't a A normal letter where there's a a greeting, like it's written to this person, from this person. It's written to Jewish Christians all over the world at this time. Any Jewish Christian. And so he's talking to them about Jesus is greater than the angels. God's speaking to him. He's greater than the prophets. And now he's a high priest. And he kind of sticks on that. Whoever this author is, he sticks to that point that Jesus is our high priest as our Messiah. So in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, therefore, Holy brothers. He's referring to them as sanctified brothers. He's a Jew. They're all Jewish. And he's calling them holy, meaning they're holy in God's sight. They're saints, like what Paul would write. So they're believers. You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and, you say it, the apostle and. High priest, I'm gonna, I'm gonna key on that a lot because he uses that phrase over and over and that's what you need to understand what he's writing about. So I, I'm, I just want that to stick in your mind. Are the apostle and high priest of our confession. So this author is saying, you Jews out there, I know most of you are not Jewish, but you Jews out there, just pretend you're part of the audience, you Jews out there, uh, I'm writing to you, my holy brothers, remember Jesus a part of our confession. He's our high priest. He's our apostle from God. He's sent from God specifically, and he's our high priest. And then verse six, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus is God's son. Christ for them is Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one in the Old Testament. And we are his house. We are part of his family. We are part of his people. If indeed we hold fast our confidence And our boasting in our hope. What's our confidence? Go back to verse 1. It's the confession. Confidence, confession. They go together. Our confidence is that Jesus is our high priest. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's warning them. This is not his first warning in the letter. But this is the first big warning in the letter. Now you guys be careful. Take note, blepo is the Greek word. It means like to see, listen, look, look out for this, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That's serious. Leading you to fall away away from the living God. Now, this is interesting, and if you just read your English Bible, you won't know this. The verb here for fall away is not the same word as in Hebrews chapter 6. It isn't the same root word. It is a completely different word. It means something different than Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, about those who have fallen away. So this is a different verb, and you need to know that because some people get confused. Oh, Hebrews 3 says falling away is like this. That means Hebrews 6, when it says fall away, means that. It doesn't. It's a different word on purpose, a completely different verb. Leading you to fall away. The, the Greek word is aphistemi, it's from apa, which means from, it's a preposition, and histemi, which means to stand. It means falling away, means to stand away from. So he's saying, now listen, you guys be careful that amongst you, there's not an evil, unbelieving heart that's leading you to stand away from the living God, to move away from God. Who is God? These are Jewish Christians, So to them, Jesus is now their God. So you don't want to move away from God as a Jewish Christian because if you read the rest of the New Testament, if you move away from Jesus, you move away from the Father. You cannot have the Father without the Son. That's very important. Jesus made that clear. He preached about that. Paul writes about that. Everyone writes about it. You cannot have God the Father without the Son. And so he's saying, don't don't doubt Jesus as your high priest, the apostle, the one that we're confessing. Hold fast to your confession. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, which I think is a funny way of saying every day. As long as today is called today, exhort one another. Well, every day is called today. And, And he's making that point. Listen, every day that's called today, you need to encourage one another, exhort one another, push one another to keep believing, to keep having faith in Jesus as your high priest, well, why would they need that exhortation? Why why were these Jews tempted to walk away from Jesus as their high priest? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come, that's a perfect Verb meaning it happened in the past and the consequences continue on till today. We have come to share in Christ, meaning Jesus, the Messiah. We've come to, to believe in him and to receive him as our Messiah if it's a conditional statement. We know that we have come to share in Christ. So we know we've got Christ, bought and paid for, he's ours. We know that if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the idea is, listen, you have to hold the faith in Jesus till the very end. Don't let some evil unbelieving heart lead you away from believing him as your high priest, as the Messiah, as the one. And then, in, I don't have it on the screen, but in verse 15, he then quotes Psalm uh, 95, and he talks about how the Israelites tested the Lord in the wilderness, speaking back to the Israelites in Moses' day, how they, they stopped believing. He's like, don't do that. Don't walk away from the faith. Uh, keep believing. So, why am I saying this? Who is the letter written to? It's written to Jews that are professing believers, they're Jewish Christians, they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And it's a lot of chapters just to convince them, hey, now that Jesus is the Messiah, you no longer need the Old Testament stuff. That was a hard, that was a hard sell. That was hard for the Jew to believe. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. High priest. He mentions it over. I'm not even giving you all the references of high priest. He's mentioning this over and over because of who the high priest was to the Jewish people. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And I could go on, there's some references just in case some of you are students and you care. Hebrews 6, 10, 10, 19 and verse 32, chapter 12, 7 through 8 and verse 28, chapter 13, 22 to 25. Over and over, the author of Hebrews is, re, is saying that he's writing to believers, to Christians, but they're very particular Christians. They're Jewish Christians. These were Jews in the first century that grew up going to the temple, offering sacrifices, following the ritual laws, dressing in the right attire, attire observing the Sabbath every Saturday. Uh, they knew all the rules to be made right with God, to be a good God-fearing person, They knew all those things, and he's writing to them saying, now listen, guys, Jesus is our high priest. Let's not forget that. That's important. So the recipients of the letter were Jews who believed in in Jesus. That answers the first question. Who is the author writing to? He's writing to believing Jews. Question number two, well, why is he writing to them? Why is the author taking up one of the larger letters in the New Testament that's, I think, more complicated than the book of Romans, if you, if you read Hebrews. You, you have to know the Old Testament really well to understand Hebrews. Romans, you kind of get bits and pieces of it explained. But Hebrews is written to someone who grew up in the Jewish culture. Well, why was he writing to them? Well, remember, these Jews at this point now, had no need of anything they had been doing for 1,500 years. It's hard to explain this to Gentiles. We're all Gentiles. Gentile just means not Jewish. But just imagine, put, your, put yourself in the shoes of these Jews. For 1,500 years, every single practice, like, oh, you can't eat that, you can't touch this. This makes you unclean. When this happens every month, you can't go to the temple. You're considered unclean. Then you have to offer this dove. You have to offer this goat. You have to offer this bull, this lamb. You have to go to these festivals. You have to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for these three festivals. You have to offer the five great sacrifices that are mentioned in Leviticus chapters 1-7. through 7. You have to do all these things to be made right with God and now that Jesus the Messiah, our high priest comes, we don't need any of it. Imagine a, a father, 50 years old, has a young grandchild. He puts his faith in Jesus. Jesus is his Messiah. And now, he, now he's forced with a dilemma. Something that I did with my grandfather and my father and his father and his father and his father, and his father for 40 generations... Uh, you no longer have to go to the temple. You, as a matter of fact, let's just, let's just board up the temple right now and sell it to the YMCA. That's just gonna be the new YMCA. We don't need the building. Uh, and all these basins, they call it the sea, this huge bronze basin right in the middle before you get into the inner court. Um, it's this huge, it's like 17,000 gallons of water. That's where the priests would come and wash themselves. You had the bronze labors on the side for them to wash themselves after the offering and to clean up the offering. This huge thing, it's like, uh, let's, just, let's just tip that over. Let's pour out that water. Let's, uh, let's get rid of that. Uh, oh, uh, we no longer need offerings. So uh, Jews, uh, all you shepherds, we no longer need that. Oh, you Levites, yeah, you're, you don't have a job anymore. You, you no longer need to be priests. As a matter of fact, we are all priests. It is crazy to them. Everything they knew was turned upside down with Jesus. Jews that placed their faith in Jesus literally woke up one morning and said, nothing that I or my family has done for 1,500 years is necessary anymore. As a matter of fact, some of it is blasphemous. I no longer need to do these things because that won't save me, that won't clean me, that won't purify me. And now the Messiah, instead of taking care of the Romans, He wants us to go out to the Gentiles and witness to them and tell them that you can be saved and be made right with God by faith alone. You don't have to do anything we've been doing for 1,500 years. I know some of you are pretty stubborn. And if I were to ask you to change one little thing that you've been doing for 10 years... You, and that preacher thinks he knows. Who's he to tell me I have to change this? Like, what does he know? My dad's been doing this, blah, blah, blah. You would be so upset. Imagine if someone came and said, everything, your clothing, your Saturday, your offerings, the way that you feel close to God, the place that you got to go to, everything is different. These Jews needed so much grace and mercy from God. They had to literally change everything, and it was hard to do because this is all they knew. This is all they've been taught, and so when you walk through the letter of Hebrews, it sounds complicated. It's really not. It's just the author saying, okay, yeah, you have a ritual watching. Okay, just like, have you, do you guys remember the, there's an app for that like, oh, there's an app for that. Oh, you need this? There's an app for that. The Hebrew author was like, oh, you, we're ritual cleansing? Uh, there's a Jesus for that. You don't have to do that anymore. When, when, remember when Jesus was with his disciples and they started picking heads of grains and the Pharisees were losing their minds? They're like, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. We, we can do this. It's not necessary anymore. Even before he died. That was before he was crucified, rose from the dead. That's before Pentecost. But even before that, he's like, yeah, we don't need to do this. The Jews were losing their minds over washing your hands. Imagine if it's everything in your whole entire life now is different. And the Hebrew author is like, oh, uh, a blood, you need a sacrifice? There's a Jesus for that. He's the final sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats, they're not going to take away sins. Oh, a high priest? You think we need to still keep the genealogy of the Levites and they still have a job? They don't have a job anymore. Well, we've got a Jesus for that. He's the new high priest. Everything that they thought made them right and righteous and and right with God, everything was now, there's a Jesus for that. So when you read Hebrews now, you have to take in the context of who he's writing to and what they're going through. Hearing that we no longer have to do this because Jesus fulfilled that. Everything, our whole Bible, they only had the Old Testament. Now there was the New Testament teachings, New Testament writings were going around, but to them, All they had was the testimonies, the witnesses of Jesus, and that he was the Messiah, and his sermons. That's all they had. Everything they had believed before, it's like, I guess he fulfills that? He doesn't abolish it. He says, no, no, no. All that counted. You guys couldn't be made righteous. I'm the lamb. I'm the washing. You need to be baptized in me. You need to be changed in me. I'm the temple. You're going to destroy this temple. I'm going to raise it up on the third day. I am your high priest. I am your prophet. God speaks to you. He used to speak through prophets. Now he speaks through his son. I am the one you need. Everything you need is based in me. They had no more culture. They had no more anything. And so when you read it, you go, wow, wow. I understand now why this author went through great lengths to explain complicated things like ceremonial washings and blood and the high priest and the temple and the tabernacle and walking through the veil. And now we have Jesus, we don't need that because the Jews needed it. They needed someone to explain to them detail by detail I don't need any of this anymore. Now, how does this relate to you? People try to find repentance and righteousness with God in different ways. We're Gentiles and we think we're off the hook, but we're not. Where do we go to be right? What traditions do we hold on? What cultural ties do we have that we think, I'm not going to change that because that's the way we've been taught. That's who he's writing to and that's what he's trying to explain to them. And so, I'm going to spend a couple minutes prepping for next week when we actually get to Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 1, it begins a context for Hebrews 6. The author says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this Jewish author is reminding these Jewish Christians, Hey, you guys know the high priest, right? Right? Yeah, you know how he does all these things and this is who you want to do all these things for you? He offers sacrifices for sins. He's the one who ministers on our behalf. You know, in the Old Testament, they had the prophet and the priest. The prophet would speak to his back toward God to the people. The prophet speaks on behalf of God to the people. The priest was the opposite. The priest ministered for the people To God. So he would bring the offerings into the temple. He would give the prayers. They would make the loaves of bread. They would burn the incense. They would do the sacrifices. So the the priest ministered on behalf of the people to God. And the prophet was the opposite. So the Hebrew author begins with, hey, you guys know what the high priest does, right? And they're probably thinking, oh, yeah, I know exactly what the high priest does. We love that guy. Um, Well, who is the high priest? Uh, In case you're unfamiliar, the high priest... Was the only human being in the entire Israelite nation who could go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The only person in the whole people. Millions of Jews, doesn't matter, there's one guy that's allowed to make this offering. As the high priest, they would get elected uh, each year. He would go in. He would take uh, he would take incense that was burned with the blood, and he would take a vial of some sort of blood. And he would the his other priests. They're not high priests. Would open the veil. The veil was super thick, super heavy. He would walk into the place that no one else could go, and he would put seven drops of blood on the mercy seat. It looks like a box, and inside of it was the commandments. And there's these angels made out of gold looking down on it, and the Shekinah glory, if you've ever heard that term, it's just the presence of God, would show up. It's the only light in the entire room except for the burning coals in his, in his left hand. He would go in and he would put the blood on the mercy seat and ask for forgiveness. The high priest would offer a bull for the forgiveness of all the priests. So all the Levites, everyone from the tribe of Aaron, we need forgiveness. Priests are sinners. We need forgiveness. So he'd offer seven drops of blood. Then he would go around to the other side and offer seven drops of blood for the people. They would be outside praying. This is a very special day, once a year, Yom Kippur. The high priest is the only one that could do that, and that was the only way that the people could say, our sins are forgiven as a nation, We have repented, we've offered the sacrifice, and now we're good with God, and we're the only ones good with God because we're the only ones with the temple, we're the only ones with the ark, we're the only ones with the right law and the traditions. We are the only ones. Now, the author is saying, Hey, you know that guy? That guy's more important than ever. You would never send that guy off to war. The high priest was so special. He's the only one that could do it. You know how that guy does it? And then he continues on in chapter 5 saying, Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that makes us right with God. He's the one that offers the sacrifice. You don't have to go to the temple anymore and you don't need the tribe of Levi to be your priest. You don't have to live like a Jew that doesn't believe Jesus has come yet. You got to hold fast your confession. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. You no longer need that. So he talks about him. He could deal gently with the the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. I've already read that. Then in verse five, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He brings this up over and over again. But was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, listen, Christ is our high priest and he was appointed by God. And he's legitimate. He comes from the line of Melchizedek. So he's not an illegitimate son and he's not an illegitimate high priest. He actually is legitimate. He's right. It's according to the law. He came. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever from the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot I could go into that, but the basic idea is Jesus is a legitimate replacement for the priest. We no longer need a high priest. Then verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus suffered for us as our high priest. Then verse nine, and being made perfect, And that word for perfect for them doesn't mean perfect like we may take it. It means complete, mature, and being made perfect. He was the complete one. He did what he was meant to do. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is our only way to be made right with God. Now, remember, the audience, it was hard for them to believe this because they thought the sacrifices cleansed them and made them right before God. And now that Jesus has come, it's like, dude, that sacrifice is a waste of your time. It does not do you any good. What you need is Jesus. And you need to make sure you tell your Gentile friends they don't need to convert to Judaism because that's not going to save them. They need faith in Jesus and faith alone. So Jesus became our source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. Again, he says it again a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is our mediator, he's our high priest. He makes us right with God, he's the one who offers the sacrifices. He's the one that tore the veil. He writes about later in Hebrews. He's the one that brings us to God. And then the author was like in verse 11, the next verse. He says, about this, we have much to say. Imagine he's like a preacher. I have, you know, about Jesus being our high priest and bringing us to God, listen, I've got a lot more to tell you. You Jews that are so used to the Old Testament, I've got great news for you. I've got good news for you. you. Your mind is going to be blown how much I can teach you now that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. We can walk through the Old Testament and buddy, you are just going to be jaw open. Like this is great. Jesus fulfills all this. He completes all this. We no longer need all this blood and stuff. That is great. He's like, about this, we have much more to say to you. And it is hard to explain. I'll admit I could tell by the looks of some of you, this is hard to explain, since you have become dull in hearing. It's the word lazy. You have quit listening. This is, you've acted like, listen, you could talk about Jesus being the fulfillment all day long, but I've got 40 years of being Jewish and I'm done listening. They had a hard time listening. They were lazy in their listening. They didn't want to hear it. It was too difficult for them to change to hear about Jesus fulfilling all this, you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be able to teach others what I'm going to show you, how Jesus fulfills all this, and he's the high priest, and he completes all this. You should become teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need to relearn the beginner courses because you're, you're not focused you're not willing to put the hard work in to learn how Jesus fulfills all this. You need milk, not solid food. We have more to say about Jesus and his role as our high priest, but you're immature. Why are you immature? Because you're not listening well. And what, what does that turn into? Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. You're not willing to put in the hard work to study, to understand the truths of God, and so you're unskilled. You you don't know how to apply it to your life because you're not listening, and you're not willing to listen. Someone's preaching it to you. Listen, I have so much more to say how Jesus fulfills all this, but solid food is for the mature. I want to give you meat. I want to give you riches, but the only people that are able to digest this are not children, It's the mature. And who are the mature? For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's those who have put into practice, who have applied the truths of God in their lives. These Jews started going back to the temple and doing the same thing they always did. They were not applying the truths of Jesus as the Messiah to their life. Instead, they were sticking to religious tradition And that's what made them immature. They didn't know how to use it because they weren't using it. They weren't listening and they weren't using it. They have all the knowledge needed for a foundation, but they're not putting it into practice. Then Hebrews chapter six, verse one. This is not disconnected. He continues on. Therefore, What's the therefore, therefore? He's just been writing about Jesus is the high priest. You've got to put it into practice. You've got to understand how he changes your life. You no longer have to go to the temple. You no longer have to offer those sacrifices. You no longer need someone else to bring you to God. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, the Messiah, and go on to maturity. My heart's desire is for you to mature, to grow in your faith and understanding, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. What are the dead works? This is the only place in the New Testament where dead is related to works. It's related to faith. It's related to other things. This is the only time dead works. Why is it dead works? Religious tradition. You have, why do we need to tell you again to repent from your religious dead works? Works that have the appearance, the veneer of, hey, this is doing something. This is big. This is Old Testament law. This is making a sacrifice. This is giving up money and time and everything else. This is real, but it's dead. It's dead, meaning it's powerless. It has no effect on you. The blood of bulls and goats can't save you. They can't forgive you, and they're not gonna draw you closer to God. That's not what you need to do. If that were true, we would all have a different church set up. Instead of a baptismal, you know what we'd have? We'd have an altar with fire, and we'd be burning stuff every day. For our sins. But we don't need to do that. Jesus fulfilled all that. We no longer need that. Repentance from dead works. And a faith toward God. Real faith. Repentance and faith. And instructions about washings and laying on of hands. The resurrection of the, the dead and eternal judgment. I can go on to explain those things. These are three pairs of ideas that were true for the Jews and for the Christians. These doctrines, we don't need to lay again a foundation of this because Jesus fulfills it. Now you've got to build on that foundation. And verse three, we will press on toward maturity if God permits. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You cannot have the father without the son. And the Jews were trying to have the father through the temple, through the law, through Moses, through Abraham, their father, and God made it clear. Listen, I understand how hard this is for you. Jesus changes all that. Jesus is now the one. Listen to him. Follow him. It's faith in him. None of that stuff is gonna make you righteous. You need a savior, a sacrifice. Our maturity cannot and does not happen without him. And so he says in verse 4, after saying this, for it is impossible. In the Greek, the word impossible is the first word. Syntactically, like in syntax, that means this is the importance. He just said, listen, we need to mature. Impossible. What's impossible? Impossible. It's impossible for us to have repentance if, and that's going to be next week. So all this, all this is setting up, how do we know when is it impossible to repent? You have to know the book of Hebrews. You have to understand who he's writing to and what he's been saying over and over about the high priest. And so uh, I know it's the American way to only go to church every other Sunday. Um, Laughter yeah, yeah, I know. The giggles, you know, I wouldn't laugh. I'm, I'm here every week. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no self-righteousness there. Uh, I, I ask, I know this was more technical and teaching. I know there's a lot of background and a foundation here to understand the word. My prayer is that you would do this yourself. That you would know that you can't just pick verses out and think you know what they mean without the context. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 next week, there's a lot, actually, in those we, I can expound more on just what he's saying, but he moves on to explain how Jesus is our high priest and how important that is. So please come next week uh, because repentance is impossible under certain conditions, and we need to know what those are. And he explains it. And it um, doesn't mean you lose your salvation. Some of you who are afraid of that, uh, I want you to have a godly fear and an appropriate fear. I don't want to make someone think that they're fine if they're not. But the, but the writer of Hebrews is writing to believers that have made a profession of faith that are Jewish, that's hard to let go of their traditions. And we can all relate to that in some ways. And we need to know when it comes to repentance how that changes our lives. So let's pray. And, um, and then Will, I think, is going to come up. Heavenly Father, Oh, your word is so good. It's like food uh, to a starving man. Men cannot live on bread alone, but by the very word of God. I thank you for your word. It's a gift to us. We don't deserve it. To be able to study it and to worship you through listening and obedience, what a gift to us that you've given us in your word. Your son Jesus, which is Who is our high priest? Who is the only prophet? The the prophet that's greater than Moses, according to Deuteronomy. The son of God. The very, the exact exact essence of who you are. The, The image of the invisible God. The one that we worship and we sing to and we follow. Thank you for opening the eyes and ears of our hearts to understand you in a greater way. I pray that through this reading and studying, that you would draw us to yourself to to become mature believers. Mature not because of knowledge, but because of practice. Help us develop habits of grace that really make a difference in our relationship with you and our relationship with others. We love you because you first loved us. You came to seek the lost, and we are all indebted to you forever. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.